Welcome to Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund, where we take on the critical civil and human rights issues of our day as we work to save our democracy. I'm your host, Kanya Bennett, coming to you from Washington, D.C. So we have some great guests on the show with us today. I'm excited to be joined by Kay Wise Whitehead, a professor of communications and African-American studies at Loyola University, Maryland, and the award-winning radio host of Today with Dr. Kay. She is the president of the National Women's Studies Association. Dr. Whitehead is also an author and the founder and executive director of the Carson Institute for Race, Peace, and Social Justice. Khalil Gibran Mohammed is the Ford Foundation Professor of History, Race, and Public Policy at Harvard University. He directs the Institutional Anti-Racism and Accountability Project and is the former director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Dr. Mohammed is co-host of the Some of My Best Friends Are podcast. He is also a lead organizer of the Freedom to Learn movement. Before we jump into today's discussion on banning books, queer people, and Black history, here is some background to set the stage. Earlier in May, the Leadership Conference joined Black-led legacy civil rights organizations and thousands of others to endorse the Freedom to Learn campaign, a movement created to fight against efforts to erase BIPOC and LGBTQ history and the lived experiences of marginalized communities. We joined the Freedom to Learn campaign as a response to the relentless attacks that have led to book banning and curriculum censorship. And we do not support this campaign in name only. In fact, as we record this, Leadership Conference CEO Maya Wiley is giving the alternative commencement keynote for the new College of Florida to stand with students who have experienced some of the worst attacks on civil rights and higher education. Florida is the poster child for these laws, with Governor DeSantis having signed into law the Stop Woke Act in 2022. This law prohibits instruction on certain race, race relations, or diversity issues, including the concept of white privilege in Florida's K-12 schools. It was also because of pressure from the Florida governor that the college board revised its Advanced Placement African American Studies course so it would not include subjects like Black Lives Matter and reparations. But we know it is not just Florida. To date, 21 states have enacted measures that censor discussions of racism and race in America. And the federal government has gotten in on the action with the House Republicans passing legislation they called the Parent Bill of Rights, which would open the floodgates to more book bans and classroom censorship. According to PEN America, during the first half of the 2022-23 school year, close to 900 books were banned, which is an increase of 28% compared to the prior six months. So, Kay, talk to us about this landscape. Just what is going on? Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. I'm delighted to be here and to be with the other guests, particularly with Khalil, where we've been spending quite a bit of time together. It's exciting to think about making a stand at this moment. And what does it mean to draw a line in the sand and make the decision to not allow this country to go in a direction that's opposite to where we've been moving, which is opposite of the work that we've been doing for years. The landscape now, even though people like to put it completely on the shoulders of Governor Ron DeSantis, he is not the only governor 
he's not the only person doing this type of work to roll back what we're seeing in our national history curriculum, to stop the work we've been doing to move forward on the rights for women to make choices around what they do with their pregnancy, to determine what happens in the pre-K through 12th grade classrooms. So the landscape with all the legislation, the 400 plus bills that have been introduced around the country are designed to really take control of the classroom. I make the argument that there are three battlegrounds that we are fighting against. One, of course, is the white evangelical Christian church. The second is dealing with what's happening with the voting booth. And the third is the control of the classroom. If you can determine what young people are learning from the time they are six and seven years old, you can already have an idea of the direction they're going to go in. If you control the history, you can then have an idea of their actions because they'll be directed by what they have learned and what they've been taught to believe about who they are and how they see themselves in this country. When you remove people from the teaching of American history, whether it's black people or brown people or people who are part of the LGBTQIA community, what you are doing and erasing them from the history, you are essentially erasing them from the landscape. And that's really where the bulk of our work is around the National Women's Studies Association when it deals with women and gender studies and the work around African-American and Latina and Latino history. Khalil, let me turn to you. And as Kay said, look, this is not limited to Florida. And book banning and classroom censorship is nothing new. This fight did not start with Ron DeSantis again and his anti-woke campaign. This really dates all the way back to anti-literacy laws of the 17 and 1800s. Can you talk to us about what this has looked like in the nation's history? Well, you know, that's an interesting point. I mean, the point of education has always been a means of liberation. And certainly, as you just noted, slave codes and the prevention of people of African descent from learning how to read and write was a key form of controlling their minds and bodies. The quest for literacy took root in the Black community from the time we arrived here, and the suppression of that quest for literacy continued well into the 20th century and certainly after slavery. But I do want to make an argument today that what we're seeing happening right now is something unique to this moment. Whatever we can say for the period of the fight against slavery and whatever we can say for the period of the fight against sharecropping education and the right to vote, and of course the basic dignity that came with overcoming formal segregation in the Jim Crow period, this is a metastasization of fascist forms of authoritarian control that is using Black people as the proxy for the fundamental threat that MAGA Republicans have identified with what they call white replacement theory. White people have never, as best I can tell as a historian, articulated such a clear sense of the fear of disappearing as a powerful, meaningful social identity in this country. To some degree, every century, starting with the 17th century to the present, saw the expansion of definitions of whiteness. Even so-called Southern and Eastern Europeans weren't really white in the way that they claim their identity today well until the 1900s. So I think the attack on education and what Dr. Whitehead said so brilliantly about controlling the classroom is a fierce battle for the future of America that isn't just about an attack on Black people, because the hearts and minds of white people 
fundamentally, I think, are what was most proximate to the emergence of these anti-CRT, anti-woke, anti-truth laws because of the millions of white people who took to the streets to protest police violence in the summer of 2020. The threat here is less about us and more about white people deciding at this point in history that they no longer want to be associated with white supremacy in the way that it has lived both in its explicit forms, in the de jure ways of voter suppression, and in their implicit forms, in the ways that we know right now, today, in 2023, that most textbooks do a terrible job teaching American history, teaching about racial justice, teaching about the experiences of LGBTQ people, and fundamentally teaching about the limits of a society that was never meant for everyone. I know that you have some optimism here around the Freedom to Learn campaign, the thousands of academics, the thousands of advocates, the thousands of parents, the thousands of folks who just, like you said, are going to stand up in resistance to the control of the classroom, as Kay touched on, the control of of literature, the control of education. And so can you talk to us about the Freedom to Learn campaign And obviously there was a big day earlier this month at the beginning of May on the 3rd, where there were calls to action across the country. On May 3rd, 150 activations took place around the country in at least 30 states all around the country. These activations took the form of banned book readings, teach-ins, rallies, demonstrations. In each context, People came together, educators, librarians, advocates of one kind or another, and everyday people who believe in truth and justice to build community and show strength in numbers against the very attacks on truth and justice, dignity, and the future of democracy. That's what happened on May 3rd. And until May 3rd, we had not seen this level of resistance to what has been happening in this country state after state. We know, for example, that 49 states have attempted in one form or another to pass legislation to diminish the lives of people in this country, period, and to diminish the capacity of people to talk about what is happening to them and to teach others what is happening to them. The reason I have hope is that we did that in about seven weeks, and we did it with people like Kay, who mobilized through her radio program, through her platform as the president of NWSA, the National Women's Studies Association, and her work as an academic to educate people. Organizing is little more than just intentional, deliberate education around a pressing matter that people ought to care about and to push back against something, in this case, this thing being anti-truth, anti-CRT, anti-justice. The May 3rd activations show me and show the other organizers, including Kimberly Crenshaw and the African-American Policy Forum, which really anchored this protest, show us that people want to be connected to each other. They do not want to stand alone. They do not want to experience fear and self-censorship. They want to know that people are standing together, are standing up, and will be there with them as we move forward in this country. Doing nothing will guarantee that ultimately we all lose. So Kay, 
let's bring you back in. Cleo talked about some of the ways in which the National Women's Studies Association showed up for this National Day of Action. And Cleo talked about how you use your platform to promote the effort here. I know NWSA put together a curriculum that was pushed out on this National Day of Action. Can you talk about that curriculum? Can you talk about plans for that curriculum going forward? Other alternatives that you're providing folks who are finding themselves in classrooms, in localities that are pushing book bans and classroom censorship? The National Women's Studies Association, we are an organized group of what we call academic activists. Everyone from Angela Davis, who does the work with us, to Barbara Ransby, our former president, to Beverly Guy Sheftal. When we show up at NWSA, we show up understanding that we may represent as one in our own communities, but like Mary Angela said, we stand as 10,000. So we have been doing activist work from the beginning. We release monthly statements about the issues that are happening around this country. So when we started talking about critical race theory and looking at the work, of course, of Kimberly Crenshaw, who is definitely associated with NWSA, we released a curriculum back in October 2021 called The Journey to Freedom. And what we did is we worked with teachers around the country thinking about what does critical race theory look like from their perspective? How can they, A, organize to fight against what's happening in their own states? B, how do they take some of the teachings into their classroom? And C, how do they become advocates for change? So it was a way of helping teachers to understand that they have power when they stand together with other educators around the country. In addition to releasing a curriculum back in October 2021, I also had the teachers on my radio show. And they started pushing out the material nationally, how they can support one another. From that moment in October 2021, we began to release regular statements because we had colleagues who were a part of NWSA being attacked or being singled out around the country. And every time it happened, whether it was in Indiana or it was in Florida, it was in South Carolina, as the president, I released a statement, a statement of support. A statement that was clearly outlining how NWSA was taking a stand against what was happening around the country. We were standing with and for our members, and we were using the power of the organization to sometimes stand in front of our members. They would take our statements, put them up on their website as a way to use NWSA to push the materials out without having their name attached to it. We also stand for issues like Palestinian solidarity is a feminist issue. So we are known as academic activists. When we had the opportunity to join with Freedom to Learn, we were excited to come together to mobilize our collective efforts to pull our membership into what was already happening and to use that as a moment to rally publicly, to be more outward facing in our work. I consider us to be very inward facing. We release statements to support our members, but an outward facing activity is a way of connecting radio, television, membership, classrooms, high schools, and using every one of our platforms to work effectively to do that. That is how we begin to mobilize. We pull together lesson plans for the day of, We did a a national countdown and we were able to involve elementary, middle and high schools around the country, as well as university campuses in Baltimore City, which was kind of ground zero, at least for NWSA, because I'm based in Baltimore City. And this is where our headquarters is. We made sure that we had activities all over the city. It was just a dynamic day to think about everyone, universities all around the city, teaching and talking about the same thing. 
We were both on the ground. And then Kimberly Crenshaw joined me on my radio show from two to four, Today with Dr. K, which is one of the largest radio shows in this part of the country. We had a, a live teaching on the air. We continued with the work. We had dropped off books at barbershops. So we were telling young people, when you get to the barbershop, pick up that banned book and then tell them to turn on Today with Dr. K. We're going to talk about that work. We had high school students doing a reading. We told the students of Baltimore City, given the challenges that they're facing, we asked them, unlike the students in Florida, and I appreciated what they did, we asked the students in Baltimore City not to walk out, but to teach in. Don't leave the school. Stay in school. And then during lunch, pick up a copy of the 1619 Project, grab a mic, and do a teaching. And I ran around the schools helping to train students and running as many teachings as I could. So we were trying to be as actively involved as possible, understanding that it was only the first step of many, that many more to come. And the more we get organized, the better we can move forward together. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And I really like this point you made in the beginning of your comments about the power of number, the power of constituencies, sort of everyone coming together and really pushing to make this change. I want to talk about some of the breaking news this week about a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of a Florida county's decision to restrict or remove books from school libraries. And I think that that's, again, a real testament to certain constituencies coming together and deciding enough, we're going to challenge this, we're going to use our tools, whether it be our classroom, whether it be the courtroom, we're going to use our tools and challenge what is happening here. And so Pen America, along with Penguin Random House, the world's largest publisher, filed this lawsuit against the school district in a Florida county and said, look, what you're doing here is unconstitutional. It violates not only the First Amendment, but also the 14th, because the books that you're banning are disproportionately authored by people of color and LGBTQ plus people. So what is your reaction to this lawsuit? Do you think we need to rely more on the industry and litigation to get the right outcome here as opposed to electeds and policy? Obviously, we see what's been happening as you laid out the landscape earlier in our conversation. I applaud PEN America and, and any additional plaintiffs who join in that suit because I think that this is a long time coming. You know, it strikes me that one of the reasons why the Freedom to Learn movement began was because the College Board had clearly appeased Florida at the time in its removal of key frameworks in a curriculum of African-American studies. And I myself participated in getting an open letter out, uh, in alerting news outlets that this open letter had been signed by hundreds of African-American studies faculty. And so it became part of a news story that called into question the College Board's official line that they had made these curriculum changes in the normal course of business and not some form of political appeasement. I use this example because the stakes could not be higher for organizations, whether it's PEN America, College Board, the American Library Association, or any number of other organizations to recognize that there is no end to the way in which this attack on truth cannot be satisfied. This is just the beginning. <laughs> it's not going to stop because the point of it is to 
eliminate the capacity of people to understand what is happening to them as the basic predicate to action. They want to cut off the head, period. I am thrilled that PEN America has filed this lawsuit, but I am also disappointed that other organizations have not stepped up. Where is the American Civil Liberties Union on this question of the freedom to learn, of freedom of speech, of censorship? So maybe this is just the beginning and others will come forward. I want to applaud again this litigation, but this should be an all hands on deck. Every organization that depends upon educating people about what is happening to their constituencies ought to be outraged and mobilized to fight against what is happening. Civil rights, human rights, LGBTQ rights, you name it. If you believe in truth, you ought to care. And so good for PEN America. And I hope others join in as well. Okay, let me have you react to this as well. You know, what do you think about PEN America, Penguin Random House, Scholastic, College Board, Cleo just mentioned, right? They appear to be having a change of heart with respect to the advanced placement African-American studies curriculum, given the back and forth that's been going there. And it seems like they might go back to perhaps including Black Lives Matter and reparations as subject matters that can be discussed. Who else needs to be in this fight, Kay? And is what the folks who are currently engaged, is it enough? Is it short term? Are there longer term real investments that these entities, these industries need to be advancing? The first thing I'd like to just know. I do agree with something that my colleague, uh, Dr. Khalil, said earlier, that we're talking about a fight for the hearts and minds of individuals. That's really where the battleground is. At one time, the battleground was over policies, practices, laws, and procedures, and that when you start to tear those down, when you start to remove them, what you're really getting into is deep-seated white supremacy and the idea that who you are matters more than who else is at the table. So we're fighting over hearts and minds, and that's not an easy battle to win. In fact, you don't know when victory actually takes place. You can't tell whether you're moving forward, you're advancing, or you're retreating. But I think the battle that we are in the midst of reminds me of something that Thurgood Marshall talked about with the Supreme Court of Oklahoma. He was talking about the two-pronged approach, the ways in which you deal with success, the ways in which you lay it down on the line. I think we're looking at a four-pronged approach. And I believe that one approach is being in the streets, doing work like teach-ins, doing work like delivering banned books. Like that's the work in the streets. A second prong of this approach is in the classroom. Are we giving teachers and our fellow colleagues that are in the states under attack, which at this point is like 49, right? That <laughs> it's all over the place. I, mean, I know. I'm, I'm curious. Like, who's the one? What's the one state? state? Where, where do I need Maryland, to move? We're already, <laughs> we know it's not Maryland. So when we talk about trying to support our colleagues, at least in the states that are dealing with it, you know, in the midst of being in the fire, like, you know, Florida has a different way of dealing with this than, say, Maryland. Maryland is in the outskirts. It's not really in the heart of Maryland, like in Baltimore City, but it's in some of the outmost counties. But are we supporting teachers in what they need? So we need to battle in the classroom. When teachers talk about taking a stand, they're talking about the potential of losing their job. That is a very real struggle that you have to come to grips with. Are you prepared to lose your job? Third is thinking about the courts. Like That was part of the strategy of the civil rights movement. Those three right there, streets, classroom, and courts, that this is not just about the one 
battle that we're watching in Florida, it should be happening everywhere. Like Dr. Khalil just said, this is the time where you must be on the right side of history. And it's taking too long for companies and corporations that have made millions, if not billions of dollars off of educational materials that have been pushed out to young people in our community not to take a stand at this moment. It's that whole idea from Hamilton, right? History definitely has her eye on us and where you stand. I do think there's a fourth prong here, and that fourth prong is social media. We have a different way of being able to reach people, and that's why I think Freedom to Learn that day was so effective. We weren't just in the classrooms. We weren't just in the streets. We were also on social media, using that tool to our advantage and making sure that the information got everyone who engaged with these different ways. So these are are both long-term and short-term strategies, but it's going to take a while. The the belly of the beast does not get split open just because you have one day of movement. If that was the case, the Montgomery bus boycott would have been 24 hours. It takes a long time to break the back of deep-seated racism in this country. And what we're seeing now is going to take place county by county because that is what is happening. One of the things that we also have on this National Day of Action, we also have Black Girls Vote based here in Baltimore on campus with us because we needed to help young people understand we don't need you to just sit here and listen to us, eat our donuts and, you know, cheer us on and sign our open letter. We need you to vote with your feet. Get registered to vote. Go back home to your state and be actively involved. Like Dr. King said at the March on Washington, go back home and do the work there because you are here in Maryland on campus as a visitor. You live in whatever state you live in. Do the work there. We have to make sure that people understand that it's not just about who's in the White House. The battle that we're seeing right now is taking place all the way down to the local level in the places that Democrats don't usually show up and vote. But this is where we have seen the transformation and it may be blue on top and it's red all the way down to the levels where they're making the changes in the curriculum. I will take just a brief moment to extend something that Kay just mentioned. And that is, I do worry also that the hesitation that I have observed among some traditional civil rights organizations that did in fact endorse the Freedom to Learn movement don't necessarily see that this movement about education is never going to be solved by federal policy. And so unlike protecting voting rights with new legislation or even something as controversially simple (laughs) as the George Floyd Policing Act, Education is a state matter. Now, we could develop a strategy for constitutional amendment to guarantee a right to education, which does not exist in the United States of America, for obvious reasons, because that education would have extended to the enslaved and formerly enslaved at some point. So we don't have that. We could go for that. And within the constitutional language could guarantee the right against censorship and against banned books and so on. But as it stands right now, civil rights leaders have to recognize that this is a state-level local battle. And to concede that ground to mobilizing Democratic voters for the 2024 presidential election is going to find us even further behind politically, given that the right has been building a massive infrastructure that extends from the local school board to the state house. And we are way behind when it comes to building our infrastructure to meet that challenge. You both are right. We need to start looking at school boards, library boards, right? Our our state lawmakers, city council members. This is a local issue. This is a state issue. 
Let me ask you, though, because certainly we know, we know as we head into 2024, that this is going to be one of the topics for debate. We've already seen the House Republicans, the House is led by Republicans, push legislation, a parent's bill of rights, as they call it, signaling to parents locally there in their neighborhoods, there in their schools or school districts, that there is something that the federal government can do for them to give them better ownership over their child's education, over their child's future. We need to be focused on state and local. What should we expect to see from the Freedom to Learn campaign when this conversation continues in the national discourse? We are expecting to build more visibility for activations in the coming months. While this first effort was to mobilize people nationally, as I said, in 30 states, people engaged on this National Day of Action. But we have some places where we need to make a targeted effort to bring people together to stand up because our strength and capacity to demonstrate that these issues like a parent's bill of rights to extend ignorance and censorship as far and wide as it can go. There are symbolic places. You know, Mississippi was once a symbolic place. The Children's Crusade in Birmingham, Alabama was once a symbolic place. Obviously, Florida today is ground zero for what Governor DeSantis is claiming that Florida will be the future of America. God help us if that turns out to be true. So there is a beginning of a conversation that we are having about where to lay down a bigger infrastructure to deal specifically with some of what's happening at the state and local levels. The National Women's Studies Association will continue, of course, to stand with and to organize with a freedom to learn, to be under that umbrella. We are continuing to release statements. We have a statement coming out this weekend about what is happening around the lawsuit in Florida, around what is happening with Kinsey in Indiana, and around how some of our colleagues are continuously under attack. Khalil noted earlier how he has hope. And I just wanted to note that I think a lot about this idea of having hope in this country, particularly when I take into account Kimberly Crenshaw's work around intersectionality, how I enter this conversation, being Black, being a woman, being a mother of Black sons, being an academic, being a former teacher, like all of these spaces that I'm trying to hold. I am a pessimist with optimist leanings. Like I like to believe that we are helping to bend that moral arc towards justice, but there are times when you're bending and it's being pulled back in the opposite direction. The hope I have is that the young people who are watching us, the young people who are marching out in Florida, the young people who are standing up and say, we do not have to live like this. We don't have to be educated in this way. My hope is that what we're doing is we're passing the torch in the best way possible, building them up with everything they need to be able to take this a little bit farther down the road. This has been such a great conversation, such an important dialogue to have. I want to thank Kay and Khalil for sharing your time and expertise with us today. So please keep up with our guests. And when they call you to action, please respond. Please engage. You can learn more about the Freedom to Learn campaign at www.aapf.org forward slash freedom to learn. You can keep up with Khalil on a podcast he co-hosts. Again, some of my best friends are... And of course, tune in to Today with Dr. K on WEAA 88.9 FM. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us, Kanye. 
And of course, these guests have authored books that should be on your summer reading list. Thank you for joining us today on Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund. For more information, please visit civilrights.org. And to connect with us, hit us up on Instagram and Twitter at civilrights.org. You can text us, text civil rights, that's two words, civil rights, to 52199 to keep up with our latest updates. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. Thanks to our executive producer, Evan Hartung, and our production team, Dina Craig, Shalanda Hunter, Liz King, and a special shout out to Sumi Cho, who helped make this episode happen. And that's it from me, your host, Kanye Bennett. Until next time, let's keep fighting for an America as good as its ideals. Thank you.